Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. The World Cup is reaching its climax. It has been amazing. England is still in the World Cup. That is pretty amazing. We are going to talk about the politics of international football. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. I've got Helen Thompson with me, regular Talking Politics panellist and West Ham fan. It's a pleasure to welcome back Mike Kenny, Professor of Public Policy at Cambridge and Spurs fan. When I was watching the game last night, it's Wednesday morning, and Jordan Henderson missed his penalty, I had this thought in the brief second that I thought about this podcast before I just despaired thinking oh god we've got to record this it's going to be worse than even after Trump's victory or the various other traumatic nights that we've been through because at least then there was the excitement of thinking what's the Trump world going to be like but we know what a world is like where England have just been knocked out on penalties so I am thrilled that England won and we don't have to talk about England that's part of the great thing we can actually talk about what I think is part of the interest of this World Cup, which is, it's been different, I think, from many people's expectations of it. I just want to go back to what people thought a World Cup in Russia was going to be like. So one of the things that was said, and Boris Johnson said it, I think, before a parliamentary select committee, when he was asked about whether England should boycott this World Cup, and I'm really glad we didn't boycott it, he said it's going to be like the Berlin Olympics in 36 and that Putin is going to use this tournament for propaganda purposes like Hitler did. And he also warned England fans not to go because they would be at the mercy of the brutal Russian police. I think it is fair to say it has been nothing like that. And maybe this is hindsight, but we probably should have guessed it at the time. It was never going to be like that because that's not how sporting propaganda works anymore. I think it clearly has been a propaganda triumph for Putin and for the Russian state. But the triumph has been, there are lots of articles written by fans, by journalists saying, oh, Russia's quite nice and this is a normal tournament. And actually, the propaganda has been the normalisation of Russia. It was never going to be marching rallies and racial propaganda or anything. It was always presumably about, which is what sporting tournaments are meant to be about these days, showing people that we're a normal country. I think there are two aspects of that for Putin. I mean, one is just the ability to show that you can put on a great tournament, you can do the infrastructure projects well, you can build the glitzy stadiums, and you have capacity to do that. So you are like other countries that have that have laid on these events. I think that is a really important part of it. But I think there is another sort of soft power element to this, which is to try to show the world that actually all the arguments that are made about Russia can be undercut. So in other words, questions about human rights abuses, the perception that Russian fans are sort of atavistic nationalists, that 
people from other countries will come along and have a terrible experience. The fact that that has not happened, and it's not happened primarily because of a very skillful operation in terms of policing. You know, the FSB have been preparing for this for some considerable while. So in a way, it's as important what's not happened in terms of civil disorder. There hasn't been hooliganism. And that, I think, does give him actually quite a powerful, almost a sort of counter-argument to the Western framing of Russia. So I think he wins or potentially wins on both of those scores. Plus Russia is still in the tournament. Plus the bonus, the team have ever performed. And, it, and I should say about that, it did strike me as amazing that people forget that home advantage really, really matters in lots of sports, particularly football. And this idea that somehow you know, South Korea got to the semi-finals of their tournament. There was always the possibility that this would be a double triumph. I want to go back to Boris Johnson's remarks because they really, they were just absurd. I mean, I think it just shows, first of all, ignorance about the 1936 Olympics before we even get on to the question about whether Putin really is anything like Hitler, which I think is pretty absurd in itself. But if you go back to 1936, I mean, Hitler had set the whole thing up as racial propaganda. Now, he didn't want any Jews or any blacks participating in the tournament. And quite a number of countries actually ensured that there were very few Jews in the teams that they sent. So Putin never had a concept that he was running a racialized World Cup. And that's exactly the concept that Hitler took to the 1936 Olympics. I think it's also true that if you look at the propaganda regime in Russia, it is primarily about distraction. I mean, famously, now what they try and do is not peddle a line and force people to buy it, but so confusion, so true stories, fake stories, it's a show. It's kind of bread and circuses. I mean, Putin is running a bread and circuses regime. Yeah. And this has been a great yeah. circus. It's fantastic. Yeah. And it's, it's a circus that's worked for different audiences. So it's worked, obviously, for the domestic audience, and that's clearly critical. But it has worked for the wider audience, particularly for the, the fans, most of whom are fairly well healed from countries across the world who've gone and been very quick to air their opinions on social media. What a great time they're having. And, and also they've been very canny to allow the fun element, you know, the performance stuff, the silly costumes and so on. The only thing I'd say, though, I suppose the offsetting bit of that, I mean, you're right, it's not that this was ever going to be like 36, but there must have been a very extended cost-benefit analysis that they went through to think about this. Because on economic terms, you know, it is very risky to put on these tournaments, or at least it's not always clear what the benefits are. So whether they are able to defy the laws associated with previous tournaments, you know, South Africa, Brazil, which do not look as if they've been a kind of economic success, whether they are going to be stuck with a whole bunch of fancy stadiums that they are too costly to use. And there is always that risk that those become a bit like albatrosses. You know, you've got these very visible symbols of state expenditure. And also, I think, particularly in Russia, because Russia has the same sort of problem that all European economies have, that they have serious regional imbalances. They have to show the regions that this spending has been reasonably equitably distributed and that it's going to have benefits across the country. I think the other thing, though, is, is that it's been a propaganda victory for ordinary Russians because the Russian fans have clearly loved this World Cup. And lots of the reports that are coming from fans from other countries are saying how much they've enjoyed interacting with Russian fans and the people in the cities in which they've been staying. And so in some sense, Putin's kind of faded away. So in that first game, he's sitting there with Mohammed bin Salman and there's this very strange handshake that goes on at the point when no, Russia's We might need to come back to that yeah, handshake. I'm slightly obsessed with that handshake. <laughs> But there was a Putin frame to that first game. And now Putin just seems 
neither here nor there. I'm not saying he's neither here nor there because obviously there's the kind of questions that Mike's talking about it, but it seems much more about the Russian people on the Russian team and the Russian fans. And that in itself is a propaganda victory for Russia. I don't mean the propaganda in a sinister sense of just like there is another story about Russia rather than one that's been penetrating Western politics for the last couple of years. The other event that it stands in stark contrast to is the Moscow Olympics of 1980. The Americans boycotted it, but the British team didn't boycott it. This is also a World Cup in an age of globalisation and of increasing homogeneity of sort of human experience in terms of information. And compared to 1980, where if you went, I obviously didn't go in 1980, but I spent quite a lot of time travelling in Eastern Europe during the 1980s. And to go to a country like the old Soviet Union then was to experience a completely other world. It was deeply alienating. You'd get culture shock because there was no cross-penetration of the experiences. And also, of course, in 1980, there wouldn't have been fans from other countries. The thing about that's made this World Cup so successful, I think, is that people have turned up to support all the teams, genuine supporters from these other countries because people do travel now. It's relative ease of travel. And again, unlike these other propaganda sporting events where part of the control was controlling the crowd, like Mike says, the whole point of this is it's not controlling the crowd. The crowds have been exuberant. I mean, last night, who are all these Colombians? Where do they come from? Well, They're the Latin all... Americans have been astonishingly I know, well the represented. Yeah, every Latin American team has been astonishingly well represented where yeah. its fans are concerned. So it's completely different from those other kinds of repressive sports events where to go there as a foreigner is to experience something alienating whereas now in this one it's clear that to go there as a foreigner is to join in the fun in a way in a funny way he's he's kind of sort of rekindled a bit of the conviviality that was always associated with the the world cup ideal the, the cosmopolitan dream of bringing all the nations together but he's done that for very particular reasons i think i mean he has made those who are calling for boycotts and even in informal terms you know there was a lot of anxiety about english fans going they're not officially don't go but this incredible sort of heavy-handed presentation of what this would be like through the media and it has really sort of made all of that look rather silly. On the other hand, I suppose it's it's an interesting question for the Russian people. Are there any sort of potential longer term effects of this? What we don't know, I suppose, is which are the social groups which are most likely to be engaging with other fans? What the perception of the far flung regions of, of Russia? It'd be very interesting to know what impact this has at all. How's it going down in Siberia? Yeah, I mean, in national consciousness in, in other places. I mean, that, that's an interesting question. Yeah, and we shouldn't oversell it. It sounds a bit like we've fallen for the propaganda ourselves. I mean, this is still a very, very unpleasant regime, a very fragile regime. And on the whole, I think the long-term effects of sporting events for good is minimal. I think they can have, when they go wrong, the most extreme example is the Athens Olympics of 2004, which, if you stretch it a bit, actually is implicated in the collapse of the global economy because of Greece's role in that, because the Greeks could not afford those Olympics and paying for them was one of the things that stretched their economy to the limit. But I don't think that Russia isn't no. a very fragile regime. It's a authoritarian, pretty nasty regime in all kinds of ways, but I don't think it's fragile. It's yeah. a fragile economy, though. I'm not sure about that. Certainly in economic terms, it feels that there's an element of risk. There is an element of risk of to it, but it, you know, it, it's, for the short to the medium term, its energy strength is going to mean that its economy mm. is going to be relatively okay. I mean, that's not saying anything about its distributional consequences of that, but yeah. Russia does have strengths in the present 
international I mean, economy. Uh, w- what it is, is demographically weak. And the most yeah. astonishing fact to come out about Russia this week is that Putin is clearly using the good news of the World Cup to bury some bad news. And the bad news is he's raised the retirement age. He's raised it to 65, which yeah. doesn't seem that old. But it's very old in Russian terms because life expectancy for Russian men is well below 65, which is an astonishing thing. So he's actually raised it to 65 above life expectancy for many Russians. They can expect to die before they can retire. What kind of weakness that is, I don't know, but it's something... Oh, it's a lot. It's, it's long-term economic weakness, I mean, because of the demographics. All I'm saying is that over the next five to ten years, it's not, I think... In, you think it's manageable? It's manageable. I was just struck. I read somewhere that the cost to the, the central state in terms of its investment in this was something like 15% higher than what, what's spent on health in a year. It just does take a lot yeah. out of an economy to be able to commit to that. And I think there is a really in- interesting question about what the Russian people will expect from this. I mean, the other thing we should say, that there is a distraction element to this, but there's also a kind of boosting a certain kind of nationalism element. And there's been some interesting reports of Russian fans chanting Russia in public places and this being tolerated. And you do get a sense that, of course, that's part of a longer-term strategy for Putin, sort of inflating a certain kind of nationalism, trying to hive it off from Russian far right, is part of the political project, actually. As a festival of nations, one of the oddities of the World Cup relative to the Olympics is it's very skewed, so lots of people aren't there. If you just think about it in population terms, most of the world is not represented. So not not only is there no China and no India, but the most populous nations in the world, places like Indonesia, the Philippines, the United States, are not there. It's incredibly skewed to Europe and Latin America. The eight quarterfinal teams just come from those two continents. So the politics of it, just in terms of you know, nations mixing with nations, is a bit weird. And certain things kind of come to the fore. So looking at it, I was struck... So to go back to the handshake between Putin and MBS, there's a kind of OPEC side to the World Cup. So Iran is there, Saudi Arabia is there, Russia is there. It was very strange. Um, So so the first game, people remember going all the way back, was Russia-Saudi Arabia with Infantino, the new clean, I'm doing air quotes for this, clean head of, um, I hope I'm allowed to do that without being sued, (laughs) uh, head of FIFA sitting between the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, the... Crown Prince of Russia, and when Russia, the first Russian girl went in, the two leaders leant across Infantino and shook hands. And my favourite bit of commentary in the whole World Cup mm-hmm. is Clive Tilsley on ITV watching that said, you'll feel that at the petrol pumps on Saturday. <laughs> so there's a kind of OPEC thing, and then there's a sort of Balkan politics running through it. So the most political moment in the whole tournament was Xhaka and Shakiri, the two Swiss players who are actually Kosovar players. Mm-hmm who've now become Swiss citizens, each scoring against Serbia, an incredibly raw match, and making that kind of eagle gesture, which is a nationalist Kosovan thing. The most political moment in the whole tournament was the the Serbians after that match were absolutely outraged. It's got this weird, skewed feel to it. OPEC politics, Serbian and Balkan politics. Part of that is because one of the big things about the World Cup is it doesn't follow the sort of power politics does it of the world as expressed in other events so you know the olympics you know it's going to be the usa and china because they invest massively in the program yeah, and in the cold war it was the old DDR. it was so, the soviet project and, and that in a way there's something about the world cup that is sort of refreshing in, in and more open in that respect because it doesn't follow those and neither as you said china or the usa were there on the other hand you're absolutely right i mean other powerful interests and forces play out through it. I think that was a very interesting question 
tension around uh, in that game between Switzerland and Serbia because some reports suggested that actually the Russians in the crowd were booing those two particular players. So this was kind of Balkan politics filtered through Russian chauvinism in that case. It also touches on that incredibly difficult issue that FIFA just does not know how to handle, which is when the expression of the celebration of the nation just moves in those sort of political directions and through symbols or gestures in this case. How do you devise rules to stop it? Because as in that case, one culture's symbol of self-assertion is deeply offensive to another. Yeah, and as an outsider, I, I was exhilarated by it. I mean, those two goals were among the most exciting goals of the whole tournament because you could tell the players who scored them really, really cared. Yeah. I think the thing about the Balkans, though, is different than the thing about Saudi Arabia and and Russia, because football in the Balkans, in former Yugoslavia states, has had this story about nationalism to it right the way since the breakup of Yugoslavia. Croatia went back to having a national football team because they'd had one, I think, immediately after the First World War, and then certainly during the Second World War. They reasserted a national football team before they actually were independent again from Yugoslavia in 1991. And so the Croatian national football team was used from the beginning in some senses as an assertion of nationhood and it happened to be the case that that Croatian team in the 90s had some very talented players so the first time they were in the World Cup which I think is 98 is when they finished third and so the whole Croatia as a nation is bound up I think in in a way which I think it isn't in a number of other countries with the Croatian national team but that brings it the rivalry with Serbia Mm. and Serbia Croatia is probably as charged a political football game as there is. Now, Serbia obviously weren't playing Croatia in this tournament, but I, I just think that the, the former Yugoslavia part of the Balkans is a is its own story where football and nationalism is concerned. But doesn't that mean that the quarterfinal between Russia and Croatia is the politically charged match of this tournament? Because in that yeah. early 20th century version of politics or through the 20th century, essentially Croatia is an ally of fascist Germany and Serbia's connections are with Russia. So now you've got Russia, who can be proxy Serbia here, and like Mike was saying, the Russians were supporting the Serbs in that, against Croatia. I mean, there is at least the potential in that match for it to become very raw politics, isn't it? Or is that ancient history? Potentially, but I think that what it hasn't got, and I mean, someone might correct me if I'm wrong, is is a history since Croatian independence of Croatia-Russia games, which in these other cases actually a history of Croatia-Serbia games and actually some history of Croatia-Germany games as well, having stoked up, shall we say, tensions. Whereas this one might be coming to it for the first time. I I, I could be wrong about that because I'm not sure, but I I do think that the football games that then happen fuel the political parts of it. It's, It's not just that the politics manifests itself in the football without it having some football origins as well. Quite a lot of it does hinge on how the game goes and also whether there are just big moments of decisions which have to be made. You know, it was interesting in the the Swiss-Serbia game, it's true the Serbs were outraged. They were outraged by the referee's performance in some ways more more so. And so, you know, I think there are contingencies here as well. But I, I do agree with you, it does feel as if football matters to Croatia, to this, around this team, in a way that is quite unique, I think, or perhaps parallel with, with Serbia. Because it is striking that this is a festival of nationalism, apart from anything else, but it does manifest itself very differently, and it certainly, like you say, seems to matter more. Quite a lot has been written about this, and I was watching it, and I was very struck by it. The exchange between Slavin Bilic and Martin O'Neill, after Serbia won the game against Denmark on penalties, they were both pundits in 
the ITV studios and uh, Slavin Bilic did look like he'd sort of seen a ghost when they cut back to him and Croatia had won and they were saying to him that was really painful for you and he was more or less saying for my country this matters more than for other countries we're a little country and then Martin O'Leal says but you're a bigger country than my country and then Bilic says but we have better footballers the Republic of Ireland in particular, I mean, there's Northern Ireland, which is a context in itself. But I was thinking back to the Republic of Ireland in its great years in the 1990s, victories over England, amazing World Cups, the 1990 World Cup, you know, an amazing, passionate expression of Irish national identity. But it didn't have, unless I'm misremembering it, it didn't feel to me like it had that same kind of raw nationalism that the Croatian experience seems to have. And I don't know if that's partly because the manager was Jackie Charlton, who could not have been more English, and that slightly diluted it. But I think it does go back to what the history of Croatian national football is and the ways in which it, it is extraordinarily important in the way in which Croatian nationhood was re-established in the 1990s. And Bilic himself was part of that team. He was in the team of the 1998 World Cup. In fact, he got one of the French players, as I recall out of the final by play acting and he's, he's kind of had to have his own kind of kind of redemption story for that but I mean even the, the shirt that the Croats wear it's pretty much the same every time it's this red and white checked shirt it's, that is a national symbol it doesn't just appear on the Croatian football shirts I just don't think it's the same way in Ireland I mean that Ireland's relationship to English football is just not the same as Croatia's football experience in relation to mm. not even just its Balkan neighbours but just the very existence of it as a nation state. I think there are two different kinds of small nations here he says when Billitz talks about we're a small nation, it's a small nation of the mind as it were, it's, as in who have basically not been involved in these struggles for national affirmation for sovereignty against these larger powers around us whereas I think there's a different kind of small nation you see say in Iceland's case in this World Cup which is about a country that may feel it doesn't always get the kind of full you know it's not well understood or it's not part of the top table where and I think Ireland falls into that category where you can tell a story about your nationhood through football but it's not necessarily asserting yourself in quite that direct way I think against other powers or against other countries. The Iceland team, it is striking. So it was um, very ethnically homogenous as well. Everyone is something son in that team. And it's a, you know, it's an amazingly successful team given the pool of people that it can draw from. And the Croatian team, again, it is not, unlike many teams, I suppose France would be the classic example, the Croatian team is not a multi-ethnic, multicultural team. So it is also being identified with the nation in that way. And of course, in Balkan politics, that has, unlike Icelandic mm. politics that that has a raw quality too. I mean, Croatia do stand out in this tournament as a team for whom, and who knows whether they'll how far they'll go. But this really matters. I mean, it mattered for Iceland, but for Iceland, it was like this kind of happy. What was it? Ninety nine point six percent of Icelandic yes. people watched the first you game. Said on they'd TV. get over it fairly soon. Yeah, it was just like for them. It was yeah, it's part of that thing for them. This is just the greatest spectacle on earth. Just looking at Billich, you kind of given his team had just won. And he did look like he had kind of was in the middle of a nervous breakdown. You kind of thought, this is not fun. I have to say, though, having watched Billich as a West Ham fan, he frequently looks like he's in the middle of a nervous breakdown. <laughs> he does like, a good haunted look. <laughs> he, really, he really, really does. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. So one of the things that was always said about the World Cup, so I think it particularly came out of the 1990 World Cup where England got to the semi-finals. They were quite lucky to get to the semi-finals because they easily could have lost to Cameroon in the quarterfinals. And Cameroon were this great team that were coming through. And there was this feeling that Africa was rising in football terms and that it was only a matter of time. This is 1990 before an African country won the World Cup because of this amazing pool of talent and the development, the building of infrastructure and so on. And that hasn't happened. And actually, this tournament was the first, I think, for many in which no African team even got out of the group. It's since 1982. Yeah. And yet Africa has produced lots of amazing footballers who then move into the European leagues. But clearly some bit of that narrative is is missing. I mean, whether it's the infrastructure development, whether it's because really this is international football, which is not where football is at. Football is a club story. It's about the big European leagues. The big European leagues will hoover up African talent, but they're not actually supporting African national teams. And they're just not as well resourced. I don't know what it is, but it's in a way it's no further on since 1990. I mean, but you could argue... It isn't, but you could argue that the infrastructure isn't there in Latin America either, except for exporting their players into the European leagues. But, but there is a, got, there's a homegrown history. tradition, and there's yeah. a, there's a kind of conveyor belt, I think, into into you know, a really talented Brazilian player will be marked out as someone who can deliver for the Brazilian team. It is, but team. I mean, is it, I mean, if you go back to the two thousands, there was a, a real attempt by a lot of the big European clubs to recruit. African players from a very young age. I mean, I do think there are some contingencies in what's happened with the African countries not going through because Senegal went out on the fact they had too many bookings and Japan clearly played the second half of their game trying to make sure that they had as few bookings as possible and didn't care about the fact they were losing to a very poor Polish um, team. There were quite a lot of late goals. There were refereeing decisions. So... In one sense, we might not read too much into it. But that said, Senegal and Nigeria, we're not going to win this World Cup. Uh, (laughs) Should I jump in? Because I think if you look back, it looks like part of the problem here is that that you get really strong teams that emerge in African countries that then do not sustain Mm. their success. So you've got Ghana, Cameroon... Ivory Coast. Uh, and Ivory Coast, which who are a really strong team. So whether there's a story here, and that might be an infrastructure story, it also clearly is the case that the top players are very attractive to clubs in Europe. And that must create challenges in terms of building the identity of your team who play in far fun places. I mean, it's true that that's a similar challenge for Latin American countries, but I think that's where football traditions maybe do kick in. And it's also probably where the sort of deep inequalities around infrastructure in your home country also kick in. I mean, there may also, of course, be an emigration story here as well, particularly from some of the North African countries. I know Morocco made a lot of effort in this particular squad to reach out to people who, you know, whose families had moved to the diaspora. Yeah. Yeah. So the diaspora becomes really important for Morocco, for Egypt. And that, again, creates challenges, but also potentially opportunities. But that's come in for quite a lot of criticism, actually, in in terms of some of the African countries to say this is not a way to create any kind of unified national team to have players 
who can appear not to have any particularly strong loyalty to the team in which they're playing. I think it creates challenges. I mean, but you know, which we've seen historical precedents for. You know, England having Graham Hick come and play for them at cricket yeah. and so on. I mean, there are. You know, this is in a world of of the movement of peoples. The point is how you respond to that challenge, and you need a particular skill set as a coach. You need to build an identity for those teams, and undoubtedly, that may create particular kinds of challenges for a World Cup. This is one of the last events where Europe is still the centre of the world. It's amazingly dominated by Europe, but not Germany this time. On the last podcast, I was joking about the fact that the Germans always somehow end up on top, and this time they haven't. Um, Is there anything that can be read into the fate of the German football team and the current state of German politics or the, the likely narrative arc of German dominance in Europe I don't think there's a causal story to tell, but I think that there's a symbolic story to tell, and that is a lack of adaptiveness. This German team was you know, extremely successful in the last tournament, but football has changed. You know, the tactics of football have changed in the last few years, including the high-pressing game, and um, Germany did not look like they adapted to the kinds of tactics that teams were likely to use against them and I think you can draw some kind of parallel I'd say not in any causal sense whatsoever in terms of the difficulties that now the German government Merkel perhaps more particularly is having to adapting to the fact that exercising influence within the European Union is proving more difficult than it was There's another parallel as well which is really interesting around the two figures involved so Merkel and also the manager Love, because I think I'm right in saying he became manager within a year of Merkel actually assuming power both being leaders over quite a long period of time undoubtedly in the popular mind you begin to get a kind of association of the two and particularly a sort of sense of association with the stability I think of German institutions and reliability and success in, in different ways obviously in politics to football it's got to have some kind of resonance and some feedback effect, actually, if suddenly the German football team ceases to be that epitome of stability. But the German FA have just renewed Joachim Löw's so contract. That, so that's where we'll where, have to see if the parallel... And, and she was, she, Angela Merkel was very associated with the last win. Was, I mean, those yeah. photos of her, it did seem symbolically, again, to sort of capture something about her, the way that that team won last time. And they, they had a relationship but with her. But there was her. also there was something in the way in which that the German team destroyed Brazil in the semi-final, there was just a, I can't think of a better word than remorselessness <laughs> about it. It was football taken to some kind of just astonishing astonishing level in any number of ways. The way that German team like passed them in the penalty area, it was, it was just very systematic. It was actually, it's the kind of football I like watching very, very much, but there was just something of the awe and the invincibility of it, and then it has all changed very, very quickly. And I think you can draw some parallels between what German power looked like in 2015 within the European Union a year after the World Cup and what it looks like now. And the European superpowers in football are struggling, so Italy weren't there, Spain are out, Germany are out. I just want to ask one question about England, because Mike, you write about English nationalism a lot. This is a tournament where the home nations, well, only one of them's there, but the home nations have a separate identity in football and there's always a question about England and English nationalism, how much do English people associate with the English nation relative to being British, part of the United Kingdom? Obviously, post-Brexit, these are important questions. 
I mean, it's just taken for granted that one of the ways that English people manifest their nationalism is through support of the football team. At the moment, it feels very benign. It's This is a happy event. Let's see how it goes from here. Is there anything that we can learn about what makes English nationalism different from how people react to a World Cup? I think there are a couple of really interesting things about this English team in the context of those sort of broader questions about English nationalism. There are 11 players from ethnic minority backgrounds, which I think is the largest number in any squad we've had in an international tournament. And, you know, this is a picture of of an English team that looks like, in some ways, looks like urban England, looks like a modern English group, and which I think frames a sense of pride in Englishness in a very different way to the debate about English nationalism that's emerged around Brexit. So you know, English nationalism has been seen as the sort of culprit in a number of quarters and by some Remainers is presented as one of the forces that led up to that decision. This is a very different kind of English national affirmation and it's a very different embodiment of the English nation. And I think that's potentially quite important. We have incredibly few cultural events that reach out to all different parts of England across the age divide, across our regional divide and across the political divide that is now so prevalent. So that's interesting and maybe creates an opportunity but of course you need politicians or you need commentators to take advantage of that and when you look at our politics I mean there's a question clearly of whether we have politicians who are deft enough to kind of harness that in any political way and speak to that mood but also it remains the case that for the most part this is a kind of cultural expression and football has been at the centre of I think a sort of cultural nationalism if you like in English context whether that kind of spills over a bit or begins to filtrate into politics is, I think, an open question in a, a period of such kind of anxiety and uncertainty in political terms. This is a hard question because the whole question of like why there isn't an English football team and a Scottish team and a Welsh team and a Northern Irish team actually raises in itself some quite profound questions about the union. I mean, if you look at when the origins of football are... I think the, the English Association was created in the 1860s or 1870s and the Scottish a decade or so um, later I think it's the 1860s and the 1870s in one sense you know this is the height of Victorian Britain the whole language in sense of politics is about British nationhood not about the component parts of that and yet when it comes to quote the national sport we end up with the absence of anything that's British in terms of national symbols. We end up with Englishness and Scottishness and Welshness and Northern Irishness. Unlike the Olympics, yeah. founded a bit later. Yeah, and actually Irish where, to begin where it's with. British. Yeah. yeah, and that football is incredibly important in, for a lot of people in this country. So I think in part it's, it's also bound up with class because football in this country was for a long time very much a working class game. It was part of working class identity and so there's a kind of paradox I think in that the English national football team is one of the few symbols of English nationhood that there is in the age of the union and yet at the same time that there's kind of a, an assumption until really the 1990s that it's all a bit fluid and if you go back to you know the pictures in 1966 you see union jacks and you don't see English flags you go on to 1996 and it's quite often commented upon how many English St George's flags there are so there's some kind of quite deep 
symbolic stuff at work working its way through this and it's interesting then seeing that play itself out in the context in which Mike's been talking about in which this really is a multi-ethnic English team and it should be said that England's in terms of the national team's ability to produce multi-ethnic teams goes back a long way that England has been incorporating non-white players into its team since Viv Anderson in the in the 1980s we haven't had in this country the kinds of problems with this issue that have been there in some other European countries, France, Italy, Spain, to give a few examples. No, I think it was really notable and important that Southgate spoke out in that very clear way about racism. And also, I think a really important moment in the build-up to the tournament was the Raheem Sterling episode around his tattoo and the way in which Southgate just sort of quietly and very resolutely positioned himself and his team on the side of Sterling that there is a kind of sense in which he just speaks to in a low-key kind of dignified way the realities of multi-ethnic England and a sort of quiet pride in that that he evinces that I agree is, is I think very important I mean I think the other aspect the other player in this is the media and obviously you know in this moment of sort of ecstatic nationalism this morning the media are going to stoke this for all for all they're worth so the question in political terms I think will become will this become a kind of distraction element to the other stories that are going on with at the heart of British politics or will there be something here that can be kind of lifted into politics can it be framed in some way that actually is to the benefit of either of these of the great arguments going on i want to ask two more questions i don't want to either predict anything or jinx anything by speculating about what would happen if england won this tournament but is there any way that this could impact on people's views about brexit do you think a sense of of who we are because, as Mike said, it, it interestingly cuts across that yeah, I, I, divide. I, I mean, to, to my mind, I, th- I think most obviously it gives ballast actually to people who are trying to argue actually for a, some sort of institutional political account of England, if you like, some recognition of that, who are very keen to present that as, as something that's consonant with a multi-ethnic England. So the non-UKIP so version of English nationalism. I, I think that's right. And I, I think in a way that cuts across the kind of remain leave divide and does rather undercut actually the argument that it's progress. I, I don't know is the answer, obviously, but I've been struck by this. is is In the aftermath of the referendum, when it was the 2000 16 European Championships England were absolutely awful and went out to Iceland and I remember there being some sense amongst people who were still extraordinarily upset and angry about the referendum of reading things like okay I just want England to lose because it seemed to represent something that they really loathed in terms of the referendum and that has been really absent this time it, it it does seem actually unifying. I haven't heard people. It's not entirely absent. Actually, there was a, there was a tweet from the Labour MEP who heads the um, Labour group in Brussels who did tweet that he wanted Belgium to win. But, but you're right. That's very much feels like an exceptional. I mean, I think there is an interesting dilemma here. I think for Labour and for Corbyn who have not been terribly comfortable on this terrain and there were figures like Paul Mason. No, Paul Mason was. I mean, he was putting himself up on with flags on his face last night is on Twitter. That right? yeah. Well, he's obviously changed in, oh, um, he's in the last 24 hours. He's, com- he's completely embraced. I didn't know that. That's this. interesting. So, so my, my last question is, interestingly, you two between you, again, I'm not trying to jinx anything, but you straddle the 66 to 2018 story because 1966 was West Ham's England. 
big part of the identity of that team was the, the West Ham aspect to it, and also a big part of West Ham's identity. This is Tottenham's England. Three of the players who scored penalties last night are from Tottenham. One of the things that has dramatically changed is that club football just dominates in a way, just money apart from anything else, but also the kind of, you know, it just sucks up the oxygen of football. And some of these teams aren't very good, to be honest, in the World Cup by club football standards. They're just not competitive. They wouldn't do well in the Champions League. But do you think that we overstate the extent? I mean, certainly I wrote this in the LRB before it started, that there is a feeling that international football is is really second best in most people's imaginations of football now Barcelona Real Madrid Liverpool Manchester United even Paris Saint-Germain these are the dominant brands I don't think that at the moment maybe it's just a passing phase but it feels like national football still and actually I think it's really important for Tottenham and Tottenham is not one of the biggest teams but if this England team goes on and does really well alike with West Ham there is something deeply kind of makes me feel almost I don't know what given I don't support either of these two teams it gives me a little tingle to think the thought of the connection between the national team and a club well, like that it's nothing like yeah. Liverpool or Paris Saint-Germain obviously it's this 1966 moment is deep in the West Ham psyche it really is on the other hand is actually from the point of view of West Ham's actual rather limited success that 1966 was a culmination because there was an FA Cup one in 64 a European Cup Winners' Cup one against a German team in 1965 and then the World Cup against Germany and also given the whole history of the East End in relation to the Second World War there's that whole connotation to it as well and West Ham have only ever won two things since then and they were not won by the players who were in that 1966 team so it goes very deep but actually the story in relation to the facts doesn't really fit that but what one thing I've been really struck by it helps, I think, that this England team is so likeable compared to like the players that went through those World Cups that lead up to 2010 and where they all seemed somehow ultimately corrupted by luxury, to use that old political language, is, is that this seems to matter in a way in which perhaps club football is struggling with. I mean, I say that as a, now as a West Ham fan who's, who've left that whole heritage behind like the World Cup and the East End by moving stadiums by moving stadiums into this you know extraordinarily different place and actually it's been you know quite difficult to watch West Ham over the last few seasons not just because they haven't been very good but in this location and this seems easier as a fan now I mean the players have been playing for West Ham are coming and going you know there's literally one player Mark Noble, the, the club captain who kind of represents, if you like, the continuity of that story back to 1966, even though obviously he was born long after it. He's very much part of that world. Most of the rest of the players are here for a few seasons at most and then off somewhere else. They don't have any deep feeling for West Ham. Whereas these players, not just the England players, but you can see it in so many of the players who are playing for their national team, it absolutely matters to them. And it makes the connection between the fan and the team much easier than often now is at club level. And Harry Kane, who is the symbol of this in every way, and mm. the, the, the Tottenham chant is Harry Kane, he's one of our own. And that is a very, very old-fashioned mm. story. Mm. It is, I, I think... I mean, Must give you a tingle. It, <laughs> it does give me a tingle. I mean, it, it has to be... 
said that Tottenham hadn't won anything for a while. So actually, the opportunity to win a major tournament must, you know, feel really. Well, these players are hungry. Yeah, I think there is a there's bound to play in somewhere. You know, this is also the opportunity to play on that stage as well. But I do wonder if if there's something here that's a bit contingent, actually, which is that. You know, it's speculation really, but whether actually the absence of Liverpool and Manchester United as the great clubs of English football, which you know we know because some of the players have talked about it since, did clearly breed rivalries within the team, or it wasn't always sort of conducive actually to the fostering of a of a, of a happy camp. But also, you, you sort of sense that it was also sometimes about who they were more loyal to. Maybe it was very hard to play for Alex Ferguson and then commit yeah. yourself 100% to a national team. He certainly didn't encourage that. So I just wonder if actually the fact that there aren't so many players from those teams and that rivalry has dissipated. I think them. the Chelsea thing played into that as well, is is that the, the, the well, there was clearly the situation between John Terry and Rio Ferdinand was yeah. personal, but the Chelsea... Liverpool, Manchester United dynamics were extremely unhealthy for English football in the in the two thousands. So I'm gonna end with God bless Tottenham and Leicester City. <laughs> if you want to read Helen on West Ham, if you want to read me on this World Cup before it started, uh, we both wrote about football in the LRB recently. You can see that at lrb.co.uk. Who knows what's gonna happen? We maybe we'll catch up on this in a couple of weeks. Next week, we're going to be talking about referendums. And the week after that, we're going to be talking about Donald Trump and the Supreme Court. Do join us for those. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. But B just was lying on the sofa, and when Columbia scored, then through extra time, and then up until the penalties thing turned around she was genuinely wailing and just going I only watch football (laughs) once every four years it's such a horrible experience I hate it I should literally I hate this why 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 and Leo was kind of (laughs) and then when they won Leo was just like what's not to like about watching England play football did she change her mind she was really happy and even this morning she was reading the. and you know they've gone all Churchillian in the times and like she's reading out these little extracts of kind of I mean if you think that the the one that the Colombians miss where it hit it's the crossbar yeah. like three inches I, I mean because that one goes in and, and it's the over. whole story changes and then it's like sort of Southgate and now yeah. Southgate is Sir, Sir Gareth anyway you're going to have to remind me how England went out and we pressed that one for uh, Iceland. Iceland Iceland yeah you've, you've, you have really yeah, buried that, that deep one, yeah. in your psyche uh, Harry Kane being haunted by Vikings yeah <laughs> um, I'll start that again